we get to come back to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah is going to identify a problem that just doesn't ever go away, I think, because of human nature. What we're going to see is is interesting because what he is looking at is the same thing that we look at in our time, that there is the belief that there is no wrath of God, that God is certainly not going to judge, that nothing is going to happen to us. And Isaiah is working with the people at that time who, though Isaiah is prophesying doom and judgment, they simply don't believe that that's possible. And I think it's important for us to consider as we uh, return to Isaiah that for there to be salvation and for there to be the concept of grace, there is implied by those terms judgment. There is implied by those terms the wrath of God. There's nothing to be saved from if there isn't judgment. There is no need for grace if there isn't going to be wrath on the disobedient. And so for us to appreciate salvation and to appreciate the grace of God requires us to also appreciate that God is going to judge those who stand against him. And that's what we're going to look at that then tonight. Four times in this section of Isaiah, we're going to read that God uses this phrase, his anger has not turned away. In fact, the full phrase is this, for all this, his anger has not turned away. And And his hand is stretched out still four times. And we'll notice this as we go through Isaiah 9 and 10 tonight, that this is broken down in these small segments where he will pronounce a woe or a reason for judgment and then conclude that woe by saying, ah, but his anger has not turned away. Now, it's important, I think, as a sub point to consider what we're going to be looking at tonight is really the problem of self-reliance, the problem of self-confidence is what Isaiah is going to look at. So open your Bibles to Isaiah 9. And as we're there, we're going to uh, read this section by section and look at what Isaiah's message is not only for Israel and Judah, but also for us. Isaiah 9, verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So he begins with this picture of God's word now falls. It is now time for God's judgment is really the picture. And he says God's word is being sent against Jacob. And so here is the southern nation Judah. Judgment is pronounced against the southern nation. And as well, he says it falls on Israel. A picture like a stone or like a hammer falling on the nation. Both north and south, Israel and Judah are being judged. And he tells us the reason why in verse nine, it says there who say in pride and in arrogance of heart. 
the problem is pride. And I submit to you, the more that I study the scriptures, the more I see God identifying this as the number one culprit for our sins is pride. This arrogance of heart. And he identifies it with them. And listen to their arrogant words. Notice what they are saying in verse 10. The bricks have fallen, but we'll rebuild with dressed stones. You see what they're saying? Oh, okay, there's going to be judgment, but you know what? We'll be fine. In fact, not only will be fine, we're going to be better than ever. Sure, the bricks have fallen. Oh, but we'll build again. And this time when we build, it won't be bricks. It'll be dressed stones. Notice the next phrase, same thing in verse 10. The sycamores have been cut down, uh, but we will put cedars in their place. We're going to be fine. We will survive and it's going to be even better than what we had before. And he says, this is arrogance. They are relying upon themselves. They are trusting in themselves. They have confidence in themselves that that is going to be better than ever before. And here is God coming and saying, this is pride. This is arrogance of heart. The problem of self-reliance, the belief that we do not need God, that we will be fine on our own. We're doing just fine. Thank you very much. And it doesn't matter what happens. We will take care of it. We will survive. We will press on irregardless of God. And so God is doing something against these people because they do not recognize their arrogance. And what God wants for his people is to have confidence and reliance upon God and not reliance upon ourselves. And yet so often that's exactly what we do is we fail to rely upon God. We fail to recognize how we need to rest upon him with everything that we have. And it is important for us to remind ourselves of words like from the Apostle Paul, who spoke of our salvation and said that it was not a result of works so that no one may boast. Ephesians chapter two and verse nine. We need God. This is not something that we do ourselves. And I think sometimes we can have the idea of, well, God got it all started. Thank thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus. So now we can be saved. And so we come up out of the waters and now it's all me, all self-reliance. I'm going to do this. No, we must depend completely on our God. And here is a people that have been chosen by God who had take that very same tactic and think, all right, we're going to be fine. We are going to do this. And we're going to notice as we go through this section of Isaiah, God's complaint is you aren't inquiring of me. You're not looking to me. You're not seeking me and you're not depending upon me. And so I submit to you, then it is important that we do not have self-confidence, but God confidence that our reliance is upon God and not about who we are or that we have some measure of goodness or some degree of good works. It is all about what God has done for us. And we have the confidence that God supplies because we are relying upon his power and relying upon his working. And that's what you'll notice that great phrase that he's going to say over and over again. His anger has not turned away 
His hand is stretched out still. This is a phrase that describes God's power against his enemies. It's used a few places in the scriptures like in Exodus and like in Deuteronomy describing the strength and the might of the arm, the power of the hand of God. And he's saying that it is turned against them. I'm not done with them. Look at their arrogance. Look at their pride. Look how they think that they're going to be fine without me. My hand is still stretched out. I'm not done. There is more judgment to come. And so he describes more of what's about to happen. Notice now verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and he has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Second point, they rely upon themselves. God says, I am bringing judgment and it doesn't cause any repentance. They still are not turning to God. They still refuse to rely upon him. And notice it in particular, he describes there in verse 13, they will not inquire of the Lord and they're listening to these false teachers. They're listening to leaders who lead them astray, prophets who are teaching things that are not the will of God and leading the people astray such that he says there in verse 16 that they are being guided by them are being swallowed up and they're being led astray and so he pictures this they're not turning to God they're not seeking the Lord they're not inquiring of the Lord and it's causing them to go the wrong way it's causing them to go down the wrong path I think that's so important today to consider the importance of a heavy dependency upon the word of God A heavy dependency upon seeking what is God's word say for us, not about what we think is right. And I think especially in in here to not have a dependence upon human leaders or human teachers. So important. He warns them, you, you trust in these leaders, you trust in these teachers and you think what they're teaching you is true and yet they're taking you the wrong way. And that's why all teaching needs to be so dependent upon the Word of God. That's why our studies and our teachings need to be so grounded in God's Word. Because it is easy to build up a confidence and a reliance upon those that we trust and think are good teachers. And well, they're not going to say anything wrong and they may not lead us astray, right? And that's the kind of confidence that they had. Rather than seeking what does God have to say, they're listening to the teachers. They're listening to the prophets. And it turns out that they are being taken away from God and little did they know it. And so is a demand on our part to always seek the scriptures, to demand of our leaders and our teachers to be relying upon the word of God and incumbent upon each of us to always study the scriptures, to compare what is being taught with what the word of God says. That is so critical. And we live in a time right now that enjoys just simply, well, if they're on TV or if they've got a radio show or a podcast, they must be right, right? 
And there's no back-checking. There's no studying for oneself. If they said it, it must be true. These are the people of God being led astray by the people of God who are supposed to be leaders and teachers, and yet they're pulling people down the wrong path. It is an important warning for us that we must turn to God and not listen to simply human teachings. And so as he calls for them then to seek the Lord, to inquire of the Lord, I think this is important because this is a phrase that can be easily watered down. Usually, well, everybody seeks the Lord, right? Seek the Lord. Well, what does that mean exactly? And I want us to consider that seeking the Lord is about taking a purposeful direction toward God. There is built within the idea of seeking God that we need God's assistance, that we are looking for him for direction, for guidance, that he is going to teach us to seek the Lord is the implication that we need help, that we cannot rely upon ourselves and that we need God's direction and God's leadership. Seeking the Lord is kind of a phrase that just kind of gets flipped around. And what Isaiah is teaching the people here is he says they're not turning to him. They're not inquiring of the Lord is how they need to find the direction of God, seek the will of God. And then not just simply say, well, I care about what God has to say, but make a commitment to do what God says to do, to make that dedication to do what God has said. And then you are inquiring of the Lord. I want us to consider that we inquire of the Lord two very important ways. We certainly inquire of the Lord through prayer. We are seeking him and showing reliance upon him in prayer. I've wondered if that's not what is part of the difficulty for some of us uh, in being challenged to a regular prayer life is that prayer implies reliance on God. And no self-reliance. Prayer implies, God, you're going to take care of this because I can't take care of it. And it's when I'm relying upon myself that I don't pray. I think I've got this. I don't need God right now. I'm good. It's all set. And it's only when things go awry and I feel helpless and I can't do it myself, then I finally pull out the prayer card and go, well, I guess I need God to do something here. That's not what God's looking for out of his people. We are supposed to have our reliance upon God first and foremost and not turn to God simply because, well, I don't have it anymore. It's out of my hands. There's something I can't do. And our prayers often reflect that. Now I don't know what to do. So, God, you know what to do. And those are good prayers, but those should not be the prayers of last resort. The prayers of first resort. That is the first place we should go for anything that's going on. Even if we think that it's going to work out. Even if we think everything's going according to plan. We need to be inquiring of God. We need to be talking to God through prayer. Seeking Him. Looking toward Him. And second, the Word of God is our inquiry as well. If we want to know God's will, if we want to seek Him and find out His will, there's no other mechanism than opening this book and finding out what God wants us to do. And the world is filled with ideas of what your spirituality needs to be. If you would just go to a quiet place somewhere, you could listen and God will tell you what to do 
where you'd find some kind of inner peace or in a world full of spirituality, but nobody wants to go to the Word of God. And the Word of God is the place of inquiring of God. And you want to know what God has for your life? This is the place you'll find it. You won't find it anywhere else. There are no secret messages on a rock and you're not going to find it in your car. This is where you're going to find it. And so often we want to look for every other place of how God's going to lead my life. And I talk to so many people who get so disappointed when this is my answer to them. Oh, you need help in your life. Well, let's let's read the Bible together. They go, ah, that's kind of mundane. I don't think it's mundane. I think it's extremely exciting that God has described what he wants for his people for all time. Recorded for all eternity that we can know what God wants of us. That we want something different. We want something magical. We want something easy. And God says, you're not looking to me. You're just listening to people, he says. You're just listening to your false prophets. You're just following humans. And you're not inquiring of God. For all this, his anger has not turned and his hand is still stretched out. Verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah for all this. His anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. What a picture. A description of how sin operates now. As he describes it in verse 18, wickedness burns like a fire. He describes the destructive power of sin. And what he describes going on at that time is staggering, but it's probably not too shocking Did you catch what they're doing? They're destroying each other. They are ruining one another. In fact, to use Manasseh and Ephraim, they're brothers. And this is two tribes of Israel. But you boil it down to the individuals. These are brothers. And they are destroying one another. And the point is, as wickedness burns like a fire and as sin spreads like the flames of fire, the result of increasing sin is the destruction of one another. There is going to continue to be the problem of what we often say of every man for himself. And Isaiah identifies it here. As wickedness continues, as sin continues to spread, the problem is we will continue to destroy one another. We will continue to devour one another. And God's message is very clear in verses 18 and 19, that if we light up the world with our wickedness, that God is going to in turn light us up in judgment. That's the imagery that he uses. You want to set the nation on fire with your sin? God says, I have my wrath. And I will spread my wrath back upon you for your decisions, for those very actions. And I want us just to recognize then that this is why we will always see in every society and every time until our Lord returns, the internal disintegration of society after society. These were supposed to be the people of God, by the way. Have you ever 
seen this up close. I'm thankful that I have not seen that here, but many of you have been from other places and observed Christians destroying other Christians. How does that happen? He tells us how it happens. It happens because we move to selfishness, because we are swallowed up in sin, that we no longer think about others, but are only thinking about ourselves. And as we do that, we begin to do the every man for himself and begin to destroy one another, which is exactly what Paul warned about when he wrote to the Galatians, that you're biting and devouring one another. The very same problem in the New Testament, the same problem here. These are supposed to be the people of God. And what a horrible display it is to the world when the people of God are destroying each other. When the people of God do not show love for one another, do not show care and concern for one another, do not act in love toward each other, but instead seek to destroy one another. These kinds of things happen when we seek our own selfish desires. And Isaiah's warning is very important Wickedness does not stay contained to our hearts. It's not simple enough to say, well, you know, I'm just not doing very well. Our wickedness affects everybody else. Sin spreads. Sin is like a contagion. It's like outbreak. It just goes everywhere, which is what James said. James 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes the fight among you? Why is there fighting? Why is there quarreling? Why is there a lack of love? Why is there the body even devouring one another? He says it's the passions that are at war within you. It's your own selfish desires that cause those things. Wickedness spreads. It does not stay in our heart at all. It was posed with a really interesting question this last week. An astute woman who had difficulty... I think she has difficulty believing that there is a God after and using the incident of what happened in Connecticut. And she asks, how can this possibly be that somebody could go in and kill little children? And my response was this right here. That as long as we continue to seek our own ways, this is only going to get worse. The more we rip God away and we say that we are going to rely upon ourselves, that I possess the absolute truth and there is no greater judge above myself. As long as I do what is best in my own eyes, as long as I continue to think that I know what's best, we are going to see a society that's going to be awful to live in. Because if there is no God, then there's no reason to do anything for each other. And we will do what seems best for ourselves. That's why we are seeing the things that are going on. It's not that there's not a God. The problem is we aren't doing what God has told us to do. And I want to remind us of it as I reminded her. What would this planet look like if every single human was doing what God told us to do? Do you think we'd see these kinds of things? We would not. But the problem is we've thrown God out. And that's the problem here. And look, they're destroying each other. And in our country, we're destroying each other. And the problem is this right here. Wickedness spreads. Sin spreads. It is not contained to self. You do not have personal sins. You do not have sins that only affect you. That is absolutely impossible. 
When you commit sin, it affects your family, it affects your friends, it affects your nation, it affects everybody. And that's what Isaiah says. Manasseh is against Ephraim, Ephraim against Manasseh, and this is the problem, the spreading flame of sin. And we must be warned against this and must seek out the interests of others first. And when we fail to do that, this is where society slides and we are part of it. And we must be watchful to that. As verse 21 ends, for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. He continues. Terrible chapter break again. Used to me saying that by now, right? Chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression, who turn aside the needy from justice to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or to fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. God still not done. This is an amazing teaching right here. So small, but so important. Justice matters to God. And you listen to what is going on there in verses 1 and 2. He says, your leaders are writing wicked decrees. He says they keep writing oppression as their laws. They turn aside the needy from justice, rob the poor of my people their right. The widows are having their spoil, they're being taken. And the fatherless are the prey. God cares what a government does. God established governments to uphold the innocent, to protect those who are weak and oppressed. That's what we read about in Romans chapter 13, that God is the institutor of government and it is to execute justice. And what I want us to see here is that we cannot read this and go, well, God doesn't really care if we have a wicked government. God doesn't really care about those kinds of things. Listen to how he said, woe to those who are writing these iniquitous decrees. Woe to those who engage in this and and are profiting off of this. We need to be understanding that God is angry when governments pass laws that violate his will. He is not happy with that at all. And he says, woe to those who bring, who will, who do this because God will bring judgment. Uh, uh, listen to the imagery there in verse 3. What will you do on the day of judgment, on the day of punishment? To whom will you flee for help? Well, where are you going to run when God's judgment falls? The foolishness of a nation to think that it is going to get away with these things. God judges every nation. God stands against every nation that publishes its decrees that are evil and stand against it. God will not allow it to stand. And so he pictures it here. His anger has still not turned away. There's still yet more to come. And what he's going to describe now from verse 5 to verse 19 is the judgment that God has decreed against both nations, Israel and Judah, by Assyria. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. 
Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command them to take spoil, to seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire in the streets. Here's God saying, so here's what I'm going to do. Because your justice does not roll like waters, as Amos would use, because you are full of sins, because you are devouring one another, because your wickedness spreads like the flames of sin, he says, here's what I'm going to do. Notice the rod in my hand is Assyria. I am going to use Assyria as a judgment against you to punish you, verse 6, to spoil and take take the spoil, seize the plunder, to tread them down. Your judgment has come. But watch the interesting turn now in verse 7. But he does not intend so, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Here God says, I've decreed for Assyria to come and to judge you. However, Assyria wants to do more than I've allowed it to do. They were to come in and judge by ruin and by spoil and plunder. But the king of Assyria does not think so. Verse 7, his heart intends to destroy. His heart thinks that he can take Jerusalem like he took the other cities. He thinks his gods are greater than the true and living God. And so God says, here's what I'm going to be doing about that. In fact, listen to the language of, of this in verse 13 when he says, it. well, look at verse 12. When the Lord has finished all of his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Listen to what he says. For he says, by my strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I've gathered all the earth, and there was none to remove, to move that wing or open its mouth or chirp. You listen to what he says there? He basically says, I'm doing all this. It's by my strength. Look at all that I've done. And I want you to see how this message of Isaiah comes full circle. He began by saying, what's the problem with Israel and Judah? They're not relying upon God. They have failed in their mission. They're not doing as God says. They have become self-reliant. They've become arrogant and self-confident. And they're not relying upon God. Therefore, I'm going to use Assyria. And you know what the problem is going to be with Assyria? They're going to do the exact same thing. They're going to rely upon themselves and think that they are conquering by their own power and by their own might and by their own strength. And so that's what he says in verse 13. This is by the strength of my hand that I have done this. I will plunder my enemies. And I want you to listen to God's response to this in verse 16. Absolutely awesome. Verse 15. 
Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? (laughs) Here's God's response. Who gets the glory, the axe or the one who swings the axe? Now, we were at the fair the other day. And when you go to the fair, you see people who bring in their handiwork. There's woodworking and all kinds of things that people create. They'll bring in quilts and things like that. I don't ever think it crossed my mind to go up to the guy who had done all this great sculpture woodworking and say, you must have an awesome axe. I mean, your axe rocks. I mean, you know, you're a bum, but you have got a great tool. That tool is amazing. The chainsaw that you used, phenomenal. You glorify the man. You don't ask him now, your tool is really great. I bet I can do that too if I just had tools like you. That's not it at all. You glorify the person. Here's God saying, Assyria, you're the axe. Why do you think that you're anything? You're nothing. You're the axe in my hand. God is the one who is doing this. And he uses the same imagery with the saw. And what we do is we, as our pride gets to us, we forget that we are simply instruments in the hands of God. We forget who we are. We think we're something as if we're anybody before God, that we are simply instruments in the hand of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul even said in Romans 6, verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. We are to be instruments of righteousness, but that's not for us to then turn and say, I am awesome because I'm an instrument of righteousness. No, we're just and axes that God is supposed to be using in this world. And I submit to you, I'm not sure who coined the phrase, but I really like this phrase. We have become glory thieves. We steal from God the glory that he deserves. And we take it upon ourselves. Instead of reflecting the glory of God and pointing people to the glory of God and people who look at our lives and see what God has done, we accept it rather than pointing it to him. And that's the problem that's going on here in this scene is that they're stealing the glory of God. Here's God saying, am I not the one swinging the axe? Who do you think you are to steal that glory? Who are you to rely upon yourself? Who are you to be confident in yourself? Our dependence is completely upon God. We are simply instruments in his hand. And we must always see ourselves that way. That the glory always belongs to him and not to ourselves. And so God says, here's what I'm going to do. Now, here's the amazing turn of events. He's just said... Israel and Judah are worthy of judgment. You are sinful. You're biting and devouring one another. You are full of wickedness. Your sin is like a flame scorching the countryside. And I am going to then respond with judgment against you. My anger is still coming after you. My hand is still outstretched. But here's what God is going to do. Verse 16. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors 
and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his force and the fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. This is amazing. God's going to save. Assyria has said in its heart, you know what? If I can take Damascus and I can take Samaria and I can conquer that northern nation of Israel, I'll just do it to the south also. I'll go ahead and take Judah. I'll go ahead and wipe out Jerusalem and it'll all be mine because all the nations are mine. He says, it's like me putting my hand in the nest and taking it. He says, uh, King of Assyria says, I can take it all. And so God says, no, you can't. Even in spite of the wickedness of these people, God now says, I'm going to save. I am going to act irregardless of the sinfulness of this nation. They deserve for Assyria to go ahead and wipe them all out and there to be nothing left. But instead, God says, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to wipe them out so there's nothing left of them. And all this power that they have and all the peoples that they've conquered, he describes that like trees. And you'll notice at the end there in verse 19, he says, the remnant of their trees will be so few that a little child can count them. You will have nothing left. You've gathered power and peoples and nations. You have this wealth of trees and this imagery. And God says, I'm going to rip it all away from you because I am going to be the light and the flame of Israel and I will redeem. And the point that he gets across to us is that God's graciousness is so amazing that even in our wickedness and even in our pride, God still acts to save so that his glory can be shown throughout all the world. That's what's amazing about the concept of God's redemption of his people. Is we as totally undeserving people, a bunch of glory thieves who live for ourselves, God is going to use to show his own glory that he's so good that he'll use a bunch of glory thieves to show how good he is. And that's what he's doing with Israel. He's saying, you know what? You all are worthy of judgment and you should be washed away. But to proclaim my greatness and my glory, I'm going to save you so that the world will glorify me and not you because you're nothing. And in the same way, all that we are is a testimony and monuments to God's glory because we are unworthy of the good things that he's done. And that's what he describes. Look how gracious God is. Look how good he is that he would use people like us and to put us failing, weak, sinful instruments and put them in the field of service and say, go be instruments of righteousness. We are undeserving, but God has redeemed us and used us even in spite of our sins. What a gracious God we serve. So let's leave it with three lessons for tonight. Number one. What a reminder by Isaiah. The problem is pride. May we never forget that. May we not allow our society to tell us that the problem is we don't have enough self-esteem. We have too much. The problem is pride. The problem is self-confidence. God wants our pride and glory in Him. God wants our confidence in Him. 
God wants our value to be wrapped in Him, not in ourselves. God is the reason we have value. God is the reason we have strength. God is the reason that we are instruments. God is the reason that we are who we are and we stand where we stand. And so we must always then recognize that our pride only gets in the way of what God is trying to accomplish in our lives and in this world. Number two, let's develop then God confidence. Let us always then put our trust in him and see what he has done for us. Let us understand that my confidence is only in the Lord and that will affect my prayer life. It will affect how I meditate and how I study because I'll always turn to him first. I will pray first. I will look for His will first and not to my own will. My life relies in God's hands. And then number three, that we present our bodies as instruments of righteousness. That we see ourselves as simply tools redeemed by God that are being used in His hands. And it doesn't get any better than that. To be a broken, rusty tool that God comes along and says, you know what, I can still use you. Though broken and ruined by sin and corrupted by the things of this world, I have a plan for you. I can use you. And you can belong to me and be part of this glorious kingdom. And there's no pride in that instrument. The glory belongs to God. Pour your psalm book.